And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. Always a pleasure to have your company. Now, it's been a little while since we've had Phil Osborne, one of my other co-collaborators, at the microphone. He's been darn busy, i got to say. Now, Phil, welcome to the mic. Thank you very much, Ray. Great to be back. Now, I might just leave it to you to explain to the listeners, because you and I, you know, we've always made it very clear to people uh, in Radio Land that you and I have a commercial relationship. Uh, we work in a company called Dirigiro, which is an Australian financial services licensee. Uh, but you've actually picked up a new role just recently. Do you want to tell the listeners what you're doing these days? Yeah, look, I have uh, recently uh, joined in with the uh, the Sequoia Financial Group. It's an ASX listed company. Um, they have a couple of different Australian financial services licenses, and I've just been appointed as the head of one of those licenses, a uh, license called Libertas Financial Planning. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of a succession uh, program there with the gentleman who started the business and is looking to uh, downscale a little bit and uh, head towards retirement, but uh, he'll still be there and I'll be working. Uh, with him to um, move things along there with that license. Yeah, looking very much forward to it. Um, plus with that, um, uh, responsibilities with the Sequoia Group as well is that I'll be chairing the investment committees of both uh, the Libertas Financial Planning Group and also uh, another licensee that they have, Interprac Financial Planning. So I'm just curious, Phil, just to give um, the listeners a bit of a, a sense of size. So how many financial planners then will be in this dealer group that you're now heading up? Um, it's starting off, there are 41 uh, authorised representatives within the group at the moment. And uh, with the Interprac group, I believe there's a couple of hundred uh, authorised representatives. So wow. it's a fairly sizable scale that we're looking at, yeah. So I guess, ladies and gentlemen, it gives you a bit of a feel for uh, Phil's uh, expertise and, I guess, management weight these days, uh, and I say that in the politest possible terms, I might say, Phil, but um, <laughs> from the perspective that um, it's really always a good uh, thing and a real pleasure to have people at the microphone that actually know what they're talking about. Now, um, recently I had Philippa Hunt from Wise Girls Money talking with me about a particular article uh, from Alan Kohler. And I sent that link through to you recently, Phil, because yes. I, I wanted to talk to you about this particular article as well, because Alan Kohler, I think, is being uh, not disingenuous, but certainly putting the cat amongst the pigeons when he's sitting there saying, to reform financial advice, start again. So I guess straight out of the gate, Phil, do you agree or disagree with with Mr Kohler? Look, I, I'm... There's no short answer, unfortunately, to that. I'd love to say yes or no. I think he's talking very tongue-in-cheek in the article uh, in terms of what's going on in the industry and sort of mm -hmm. saying it might be a bad idea to sort of throw a bomb in there and start all over again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so when you have a look at that, and I certainly, when I read the article, there were some of the comments in there, I thought, oh, that's a little bit harsh. But as I went forward, he actually did explain himself that, he was taking a harsher view and being a little bit more tongue-in-cheek in relation to it. Uh, but uh, it's been very interesting because we've also had recently, uh, 
we're going through uh, what's called the quality of advice review. A um, lady by the name of Michelle Levy was charged by the previous government to uh, head a panel to have a look at uh, the way that financial advice is given in the in the Australian industry. And uh, she released an interim consultation paper recently. And I think it's fair to say um, that a couple of her recommendations really did throw that hand grenade in there. And uh, uh, I think a lot of people... Uh, were very surprised by the extent to which she was recommending things might actually change. So that that's mm. probably the basis upon which the article actually came out about. Yeah, I, I guess one of Kohler's opening statements when she was, when he was saying about the Levy consultation paper, you know, the worst thing is that she didn't think big enough. And there are many views. And I mean, you and I both sat in a roundtable just recently at our own association, the Association of Independently Owned Financial Professionals, and the, uh, this organisation, ladies and gentlemen, will actually be putting in a submission to the consultation uh, that's going to go up to the Minister, Stephen, um, Stephen Jones, not Smith. I keep on getting Smith and Jones, <laughs> an old... Uh, I think that anyway, it's we'll let that comedy, one go uh, by. Comedy team, yeah, it's yes. the old comedy routine, yes, for those of us old enough to remember that. But... Um, Kohler goes on to say, overcompliance has made financial advice far too expensive and largely useless. Now, I agree with the first part that it's probably too expensive, but largely useless. I'm not so sure about that. Would you agree with that that fairly outlandish statement? I guess in my no, view, no. I, I, I look, I actually do agree with that statement, and the reason that it's been rendered useless is that. By dumping all of these things on over time, and just a quick side there, it's not legislation that's done the dumping, it's the industry itself by adding a bit and adding a bit and adding a bit. Um, it's a bit like the frog in uh, the water and you turn the heat on. Yeah. It doesn't realise that it's boiling again. It's just a little bit more and a little bit more. We've actually got to that point where... The whole purpose of the statement of advice document back when financial services reform first came in was so a client would have something that they could read. It was uh, basic and to the point to explain briefly why the recommendation had been made for them and why it was a good thing for them to do. Um, in fact, if you go back to when it all started, sort of 20-odd 20, 20 years ago, um, ASIC put a paper, our consultation paper 32, in what they actually made the statement that they would see a long statement of advice, which is this advice document, they would see a long statement of advice as being misleading and deceptive. So that's the thing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And if you speak to them today, they still say the same thing. And that's where I say it's it's the industry that's actually done this. It's not the legislation. So what's actually happened is over the years, we've got these big, thick documents that nobody reads. So we get them prepared, we put them all together, um, but they're useless because nobody will actually read them. Um, and, and, and if a client uh, tried to read it, yeah, it would be very, very I'm difficult to go through and understand. Yeah, I, might chime in there. I might chime in, ladies and gentlemen. When uh, when I became a financial planner about four years ago, my very first statement of advice that I wrote was 94 pages long. Oh, God. Mm. It was for yeah. a self-managed super fund. I get it. But I went back to my supervising, um, my supervising planner because you had to work under advisement when you were first starting out. And I, I just looked at him and I said, we don't really expect them to read this. I mean, they're not going to, are they? And we we sort of joked about it. And that was that was four or five years ago, and it's got even worse since then, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And this is the thing. I mean, 
For mine, I've made the comment before, and this, this is Phil Osborne, compliance person talking now, not speaking on behalf of anyone else. Um, but the whole thing is that a statement of advice appears now to be a commodity. It's something that you have to give a client. So here you go. I've put it together. I've given it to the client. If the client doesn't read it, not my problem. That's okay. Um, and, and that's what it is. It's now this whole thing of here, I have to give you this document, and there's a thud as it lands on the table. But as far <laughs> as the whole as far as the whole purpose of what it's supposed to be for, um, we've moved away from that totally. It was supposed to be something that because uh, there were fairly um, sophisticated concepts, uh, the whole idea behind the document was it was just a short uh, short um, missive to actually say, look, these are the reasons why I think you should do this. That was what it was all about. So, yeah, in terms of the, the usefulness of a statement of advice today, um, just because of the way that the industry has actually gone about doing them, um, they're not very effective. They're not very useful at all. So that's a fascinating take. I've got to say, Phil, I very much agree with you. And Kohler goes into the article a bit, and he, he talks about a short history lesson. The financial advice industry came into existence as the marketing and distribution arm of the investment industry, which paid commissions for the sale of their products. And in the early days, he puts in inverted commas, these advisors, as they laughingly called themselves, added the investment products to the life insurance policies. And you know this well because you came from the old AMP selling days. Mm -hmm. And so when mm -hmm. people thought they were getting advice, what they were in fact getting was sales without necessarily being told that. Now, before we, we're just about to go to a break, ladies and gentlemen, and when we come back, Phil, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Hain Royal Commission and what the results of that commission has brought forward and whether we've had any decent result out of that. So it's time for a short station announcement. You're here on Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital, and at the microphone with me today is Phil Osborne from Dirigir Advisory and Libertas Financial Planning, and we'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. Really great to have you along today. I've got Phil Osborne, who is the compliance expert with Dirigir Advisory and also the head of Libertas Financial Planning. And we are talking today about an Alan Kohler article where he talks about reforming the financial advice industry and starting all over again. And we've been talking before we went to the break about uh, the Levy consultation paper that's presently before Treasury and uh, a number of people that are putting in submissions. And we were doing a little bit of a history lesson just before we went to the break when we were, at back, I guess, harking back to the bad old days when people thought they were getting advice when, in fact, what they were really getting was sales. Now, we had a royal commission, uh, the Hain Royal Commission, uh, that was supposedly going to flush all of this out. But what do you, what's your take on the the upshot now of the Hain Royal Commission, Phil? Um, well, look, the, the interesting thing I found from the Hain Commission, and I, 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 I maybe I maybe I missed something. I don't know, um, but the whole thing was when you have a look at all of the recommendations that Commissioner Hain made, and this was back in 2018, 2019, when it was all investigated and put together, he actually said um, the actual advice being given to people isn't that bad. And in fact, I reckon that if you have a look at things 
in a few years' time, namely 2023, that you should be able to get rid of the best interest obligation. I don't think you need it. So my question there, and I suppose when I look at it and say, well, okay, if Commissioner Hayne is saying that I think advice is going along well enough that you can actually remove uh, acting in a client's best interest from legislation and removing steps to show that you've done that, if he's saying you can do that, the advice can't be that bad. So I've got to say, I, I do agree. Yeah. I've got to say, that's I yeah, and that, that was where, when you had a look at the quality of advice um, paper that was put out and the questions that were asked for the initial submissions that were put in in June by various parties, um, all of the questions weren't actually about the advice that people were getting. It was about the delivery of the advice. Uh, so about the documentation, so about um, fees and how they're charged and that sort of thing. I made the comment at the time, it's not about quality of advice, it's about quality of delivery. So that that's where mm. I sort of look at it and say, look, Commissioner Hayne, if there had have been a real problem with advice, then I do believe that there would have been recommendations put in the Royal Commission that said this has to change when you're giving advice, that has to change when you're giving advice. But there was no such thing. All of the recommendations were to do with the disclosure of fees, um, with uh, going into agreements with people for fees for services and that sort of thing. So that was the big outcome out of the uh, Royal Commission to do so. And that's where, um, with this article by Alan Kohler and saying he's throwing in the hand grenade there and blow it up and start again, um, this is where Michelle Levy, heading up the Quality of Advice Review, this interim paper that's come out has said, look, um, I actually believe that we can get rid of these documents called statements of advice. I don't think you need to give a client a written document uh, that actually tells you what they're recommending. And if you're dealing with the client in the future, the only reason you would give them some sort of advice document in the future is if the client actually asks for it. So this is where it's actually gone to. And there's been a lot of people in the industry that have actually, I suppose, scratching their heads and saying, wow, we never in our wildest dreams ever thought that you'd have somebody from this type of um, review recommending to do away with this advice document. Uh, I think everybody in the industry would like to see advice documents that are short and to the point and actually deliver a service. Um, and we should. Uh, the legislation around it, there's a section of the Corporations Act, Section 947C, Part 6, that actually stipulates that the um, statements in a statement of advice uh, must be clear, concise and effective. So um, basically, the legislation actually says that these documents should be short too. So that's that's a part of where all of this is coming from. But as far as the actual quality of the advice that's being given out in the marketplace, um, that doesn't actually appear to be a problem. That's also backed up by AFCA, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, coming out in recent months and saying, because they deal with banking and uh, mortgages, so credit and finance and that sort of thing, as well as financial advice, and they say that the number of complaints that are coming in uh, from the financial advice side of things 
represent them by far the smallest percentage of the overall number of complaints that are coming in. Most of the complaints are coming in about banking and uh, finance services with very, very few in uh, comparison uh, to do with the actual giving of advice and what's going on there. So that hasn't been a major focus, the actual quality of the actual advice that's being given to people. I think you raise a really good point, though, uh, Phil, and I've had this discussion with Philippa before. I think the elephant in the room are the banks and the large institutions who have largely gone by the by and walked away with a whiplashing of, uh, of, uh, of the toothbrush because they were able to lobby the previous government and water down the Hain Royal Commission. And I think they, I mean, some of the big banks' behaviour uh, with the conflicted advice within their own um, advice organisations, which they've now spun off and sold. But I think they've walked away thinking they've dodged a bullet. And to a larger degree, I'd suggest they have. But I um, I, I know that they happily walked away from advice, but the damage that has been done, uh, I think in the meantime, has been really one of those things. And Kohler goes on to write, AMP battles on a bit like the Black Knight in Monty Python. It's just a flesh wound <laughs> trying to make profit out of advice so far without success. He makes an interesting statement next, which I want to flesh out a little bit with you now. The industry really only exists now because of the failure of super funds to provide a seamless retirement solution. Now, I think he's been a bit disingenuous there. That's a very simplistic statement. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing. It's not just about uh, getting advice on your superannuation. Um, It's a very big big part of what a lot of people have uh, towards their overall wealth. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about what do they do with the rest of their money? It's not all about superannuation. Um, yeah, look, if the big super funds were, I suppose, providing holistic advice and offering that kind of a service as what they do, then, yeah, look, it would be um, it, it would be very hard to combat that. Uh, but they're not. It's that simple. They're providing what they call intra-fund advice, and uh, they're just talking about the actual fund itself. So on that basis, they're not taking a person's overall situation into account. That being said, um, if a client comes to see you to get financial advice, it's not always about their overall situation. It might be to do um, with a particular parcel of shares that they may have uh, that they want to do something with or should they do something with. Uh, they've received an inheritance. What should they do with that or some other windfall or something that way? Or do they just want to uh, stop the rot and feel like they're getting themselves ahead a little bit financially? Um Superannuation can be a part of that, but it's not the be-all and end-all of everything. So I, I don't agree that it's just about the super funds not getting their act together. Um, they're one part of the whole deal. That's where it all sits. I, I'm glad you said that, Phil, because I, I must say I, I found that statement overly simplistic and and. I think insulting to some degree that suggests that people don't think about investing or saving or in any way looking to the future because all of a sudden, you know, Mr Keating back in 1996 legislated superannuation and so we can all switch our brains off when we don't have to think of again until we turn 67. Um, I, I just found the statement rather, um, uh, it was a bit too simplistic, but I think he goes on to keep making some really good points though, because he talks about lump sums dominating. And as you said, you know, we're facing situations where many people now, and thankfully, because we do have 
a, a very robust superannuation environment now. Three point two trillion, I think, is sitting in in super now at the latest count, and so that means when the boomers, as we are, are starting to retire. They're all retiring with pretty chunky nest eggs, which 20 years ago, nobody really had. They were simply going to go on to an age pension. And I guess that's the real dilemma. You know, is there uh, only conflicted advice out there or do you think that people can actually find good financial advice at a reasonable price today? Oh, look, I think they can find good financial advice. Um, whether it's reasonably priced will depend. It's, that's beauties in the either beholders, so uh, that's <laughs> the person will be there. Um, because ultimately, some people will be very happy to pay at a certain rate, and that's why uh, some practices flourish in a particular area. Uh, they deal with high net worth people with complex issues. And those issues, it takes a good deal of experience and skill. That's, pardon me, that's not something you get uh, uh, for um, for no for nothing. Um so you've got to pay for that type of thing. There are other people that just want to, as I mentioned before, just know they're getting ahead and it might be a very basic scenario. Um, we should be able to price that into the market there. But again, if you go to one of those people or you're referred to one of those people that deals with that upper level, um, they've got certain costs and expenses that they have to run with. And that's uh, part of the deal. It's not just about... Um, uh, sort of sitting down and saying, oh, yeah, look, let's have a meeting one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, we'll sit down the hour. I'll actually give you, uh, um, give you some advice, and there you go. Bang, fantastic. There is hours of due diligence that gets done behind the scenes. Um, you're in a super fun with your work currently. Is that the best option for you? Um, speaking to a, a person this morning, um, looking at what they're doing, they're in a self-managed super fund, but the needs that they have and the way that they want to go about it. One of their goals was to say, look, I just want to have a simple um, life. I don't want to have to worry about this stuff. Um, is there a better way? So for them, a self-managed super fund may not be the answer. A direct share portfolio may not be the answer. It may be sev several uh, well-chosen, diversified, managed funds in a retail superannuation plan that actually suits that person best. And I think that's the bit that at the end of the day, a lot of people don't appreciate is that it's not just about one size fits all. Um, if that was the case, and a lot of people talk about the cost of the, the funds and everything, if it was all about price, then there'd be one fund in the marketplace um, because that's the cheap one. So nobody else buys anything else, we buy the cheap one. Um, but what um, features do you want? Do you want to be able to buy direct shares um, as a part of your superannuation? Well, not all platforms allow that. And if you do go to a platform that does that, um, you're going to have brokerage costs. Um, there's probably a little bit more of an administration fee to be able to offer that service. So that's the type of thing we've got to think about. And then when you're getting into that area of talking about direct shares and making all of those comparisons, again, that's a certain level of skill. It's a step up from the very basic level uh, of just talking about a range of managed funds and that sort of thing. Um, it requires a lot more monitoring on an ongoing basis for the client as well. So you can expect that you're going to pay not just a higher fee for the actual advice being given, but you will have a higher fee in terms of the ongoing review that you subscribe to. So it, it's horse for courses. Um, if somebody wants a basic, absolutely cheap as chips uh, solution and uh, given for financial advice, 
fantastic. They're not going to have any bells and whistles. And if they turn around and say, oh, but I want the bells and whistles, well, okay, let's understand there's a trade-off here. So if you want the bells and whistles, it's going to cost you a bit more. Um, it's like the old thing we talk about when we talk about the trade-off concept. Every client wants the uh, high-performing, um, tax-effective, guaranteed investment. You don't get all of those <laughs> things in one hit. So which and of no those risk. is it that you actually want? And no want? risk. And, totally, and they, no risk. That's the deal. And no risk. We want Phil. those guarantees. They want all of that and high returns but no risk. Exactly right. So, okay, that's fine. Understand everybody would like that. I personally wanted a pony for Christmas. That didn't happen. So <laughs> how is it? What do we do here? And that's the thing. So what are we prepared to trade off? So if I'm a planner who wants, sorry, if I'm a client who wants those extra things, wants those clever solutions that are a little bit uh, away from what I suppose you'd call regular vanilla type of planning, um, then, yeah, I'm going to have to pay a bit more of a premium to go to somebody to get the due diligence done and the analysis provided to work out whether or not that's appropriate for me and, if so, what uh, type of strategy is appropriate for me in, in that sort of respect. So it's, yeah, um, I, it, it's, again, it's a visual thing, but I've seen it on my Facebook feed a few times where you've got the... Um, You've got the person that uh, somebody's been drawing an artwork of a horse and uh, you get about halfway through and then all of a sudden becomes a stick figure. And they say, yeah, everybody can do it cheaper. No, but what is it that you actually want? Do you want the really beautiful drawing or do you want the stick figure? Because, hey, if you want the stick figure, I can give you that really cheap. No problem whatsoever. And uh, You make some good points. So, look, um, it's time for a break now. You're here on Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. And at the microphone, I have Phil Osborne, who is the Compliance Manager for Dirigier Advisory and the Practice Manager for Libertas Financial Planning. And we'll be back in just a moment after a short station announcement. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. Always a pleasure to have your company. And today at the microphone, I'm really pleased to have Phil Osborne, one of our regular contributors. And Phil has recently taken up a wonderful role. He's the head of the Libertas Financial Planning Practice, uh, which involves quite a substantial number of planners that will be under his uh, management uh, aura. Yeah, yeah. Actually, and I'll just, I'll just he, put you up on that, uh, Ray, because it's, it's not a practice. We've got uh, 41 advisors spread over a range of practices. Um, my so apologies. My role is to actually uh, have a look at the license and see what the license is doing so we can better support the advisors. And ideally, there we, we want go. to try and think about these things that are happening with the quality of advice review and say, okay, these things are being suggested. Where might, where might we be heading into the future with that and what will we need to do as a license group? Um, and as you mentioned before, you talk about quite a lot with Philippa. One thing we're very, uh, not, I suppose, concerned about, um, but we, we want to make sure, and uh, the uh, gentleman who started Libertas, Mark Uvrad, he was very uh, big on this in terms of the culture, but we want to make sure that we treat advisors with a bit of respect. Uh, we want to make sure that if we're going to deal with them, we're upfront and honest and not, um, I suppose, yeah, that old word integrity that keeps popping up. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot that's actually going on with uh, working with this licence and uh, putting it forward as a licence for the future as much as we possibly can. Excellent. Well, look, one of the things that I wanted to, to uh, move on to 
Uh, and again, back to our reference article that we've been talking about during the course of today's uh, discussion is Alan Kohler's, uh, I, I guess, views around the Levy consultation that's before Treasury at the moment. He, he heads up his last uh, paragraphs around something called a lack of trust. Now, Funnily enough, he says, as I see it, and I'm quoting directly from his article, the fundamental problem is that the regulation is based on the proposition that financial advisors cannot be trusted. Now, this is a fascinating concept because what it's in effect saying is that we are guilty until proven innocent, whereas the AMA treats their doctors as uh, innocent until proven guilty. And I think because of the number of financial scandals that have occurred over the, a number of years, I, I guess we haven't come out uh, looking too rosy, have we? Yeah, look, uh, yes, I, I, I agree with that, that because of the uh, the press that there's been. But the, the qualification I'd put onto that is it's statements like that that cause the problem. There haven't been, in terms of the numbers of financial advisors in Australia, there haven't been a huge number of scandals. There have been scandals, don't get me wrong. And unfortunately, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, there are going to be bad apples that go into it and try and uh, look after themselves by ripping off people and getting out and hopefully uh, they can get away with it. But uh, unfortunately, uh, that's the big thing. And unfortunately, um, when we listen to the news at night, we don't hear good news stories. In fact, if there's ever a good news story on the news, they give it a bit of fanfare and say, oh, wow, we've got a good news story for you now. What does that say? <laughs> but the rest of it is bad news. And it's bad news that sells. It's the scandal that makes the paper. So you've got people like Mr. Kohler that uh, it's the, it's – not part of their job description, but essentially it's a part of the modus operandi is, okay, let's find the juiciest scandal that we can possibly can and let's put that out there because that'll get me clicks, that'll get me read and it'll have my name up there with it. Um, I did some figures leading up to a conference a couple of years ago and I, I took the year before the, um, uh, the pandemic hit because once the pandemic hit, we've had a couple of years of lots of stuff up in the air. And mm -hmm. look, to cut a long story short, I've worked it out that with the number of media releases that ASIC put out about um, actions they'd taken against the various groups, with the number of advisors that we had in the marketplace, um, it represented 0.61% of advisors that had been subject to these things, 0.61%. Now, it's the no. old thing, the old standard deviation. You've got a 2.5% at either end um, that doesn't fall within your, your normal scenario. This is less than that 2.5% variance at the absolute extremes. So it's not like we're full of rogues and uh, villains in the industry, but it's just the reporting of it that's actually happened. Yes, we had the financial crisis. The thing that a lot of us forget is that Australia did so much better than the rest of the world because of the system that we actually had in place of checks and balances with the legislation and the quality of advice that was being given in the marketplace. So we've actually done as an industry, and it goes to what we said before with ASIC and the number of complaints that they get is we're not in that bad a state. We're not doing that bad a job. So that that's, I suppose, where I come from with that and that particular comment well I, I guess one of the factors that I keep seeing uh, in you know this trust factor 
It's more, uh, I guess I, I make the uh, correlation to a plane crash. You know, I keep saying to people, look, flying is one of the safest forms of travel, yet the, the thing is when an aircraft does hit the deck uh, in a bad mm. way, it makes world news. And so I think yes. we're, we're suffering mm. from the same kind of scenario here with the bad eggs in the advice industry. Um, when yeah. we have mm. failures, they tend to be very spectacular, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And as we say, it makes uh, it's an emotional issue because you're talking about people's money and livelihoods being affected in futures. So it's a great um, it's a great story to actually lead with and get people interested. Um, from a political point of view, it's a great thing to uh, be uh, talking to people and get votes from because we're talking about we're looking after you because we're protecting you from all of these things going on. And as I say, it doesn't necessarily need to be protected from. Um, you speak to clients or you speak to the general public and ask about their perception of the financial services industry and, uh, oh, yes, oh, they're all rogues and thieves and villains and that sort of thing. <laughs> and you say, tell me, do you have a financial planner? Oh, yes, I do. He's fantastic. He's really good. So, okay, tell me who all of these rogues and villains and thieves are because everybody you speak to, their financial planner, they're fantastic. And yeah, they it's somebody else. And they look me. Absolutely right, yeah. So I, I guess the next question I did want to ask you in, in this framework that we're trying to move forward with, uh, with the reviews go, going on and a new government in power, et cetera, are commissions bad? I mean, I, I ask this question because sometimes I want to look at people and say, you know, when you walk into a car yard, do you begrudge that poor salesperson that their yep. right to make a living? Do you begrudge anybody that sells their right to make a living? And I, I see the same thing here. I look at people and say, well, why do you begrudge a financial advisor or a product person in the finance game their right to make a living? I mean, I don't see commission as being bad. I see conflicted remuneration a problem but i mean is there a way we can move through this phil look the hard part is i suppose getting the legislators to understand how it all does work um one thing that happened there was a uh, some legislation called the life insurance framework that came in in the late part of the last decade and it actually said right what we're going to do we're going to reduce the levels of commission and we're going to put a ceiling on them, and that's it. That's what you're going to get. And it's now down at 60% of that first year's uh, premium. And the thing is that if the, the only amount you can offer is 60% as, uh, as a life insurance company, it's not like you're saying, oh, they're paying you 60%, I'll pay you 65 That conflict is now removed. So there's no conflict of interest in that particular regard. Um, so that, that's one aspect of it. But then uh, the legislators will say, oh, but if he just wants to make a quick buck, he just goes and says, oh, I'm, I'm a few dollars down this year. I'm going to go and I'm going to get these clients that I've got and I'm going to put them into new insurance policies and I'm going to earn a commission out of that. The thing that they don't understand is, there is a hell of a lot of work that's actually required to get people over the line with insurance. You don't just fill out an application, send it in, and Bob's your uncle. Um, there may be underwriting to go through. Um, you would want to be giving the client a good excuse as to, okay, um, this is why we're going to do this. It might be cheaper. And if that's the case, uh, if your ongoing commissions are based on the premium, you're actually cutting your own nose to spite your face because your ongoing yeah. commissions will be be less every year if you go down that path. Um, and, and that's where people talk about, oh, no, that we should be charging fees. 
and that's fine, but not a problem. I will charge you a fee and I won't take a commission. But understand that if the uh, commission doesn't uh, get uh, paid, the premium doesn't drop down by the amount of the commission. Um, you might get a little <laughs> bit of a drop in the commission. So all of a sudden, you're not just paying uh, the annual premium every year, you're also paying a fee on top of that. So it's actually a much yeah. more expensive proposition. Now, if we're trying to encourage people to take out insurance because we have a major under-insurance problem in this country, um, by telling people, oh, don't worry, you'll pay for your premiums and you'll pay a fee to do it, you're actually providing a disincentive to people to actually take out the insurance that they need. So that's certainly an issue that's got to be addressed uh, and probably more so understood by the legislators before they go along and say, oh, commissions are bad. Commissions are a way that an advisor will be rewarded for the work that they do and then not always because the commission may not always cover exactly what their costs have been, uh, but they will get something for that and it won't be an extra cost to the actual client. So I, I guess to, to round out today's discussion uh, and given that we've had such an immense loss of financial planners, um, and this probably feeds into the narrative that I think the big institutions want to have uh, happened. Uh, I think it's inevitable, and I'm a bit of a technologist myself, but is there a place for robo-advice moving forward? Um, and I might just put in there before you answer, Phil, uh, I'm an old technologist, and we used to have this thing called GIGO, garbage in, garbage out, okay? So, you know, a program's only or a computer is only as good as the, as the information that you feed into it. And even if you are uh, doing something with a robo-advice engine, um, you always have to consider who's actually pulled the engine together and made it. And so if the robo-advice comes from Acme, I'm just going to use that as a generic corporate term, Acme Proprietary yeah, Limited. Yeah. It's uh, uh, represented Wiley Coyote, yes. Yeah, of Wiley Coyote. Very good. I like that. That's very good, Phil. Uh, we're showing our uh, Warner Brothers age again with oh, the cartoons. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I think as an example, it simply says that if Wiley E. Coyote is writing the code for the robo-advice, how different is that to a conflicted uh, piece of advice that we had pre um, uh, pre uh, uh, pre-technical uh, robo-advice being provided. So let's just take all of that in consideration. So the, the question was, is there a place for robo-advice moving forward in your view? Look, actually, your timing's really good because I led a discussion on this yesterday. And ah. again, Phil, Os <laughs> um, Phil Osborne's personal opinion on this, so I'm not representing anybody when I say this, but um, I think we need to, uh, I suppose, get a little bit of a, perspective on where things are at. Uh, we work in the financial services industry. Of course, you want to get as many people doing what it is that you do and dealing with you in the way that you go about it. But here's the thing, and this is what I sort of posited yesterday, is every one of us are different. Some people are absolutely comfortable going online, searching things through, doing their own research and putting things into play uh, into place online. That goes for uh, uh, online shopping, um, all of that type of thing. Um, I, I think about if I use me as an example, I would actually, I don't mind online shopping, but if I'm going to buy a shirt or I'm going to buy a pair of shoes, um, I'm going to go to the store to do that so I can actually try it on and feel it and all of that sort of thing there too. 
Um, I'm not necessarily going to go out and measure my own feet and make sure it's right and this, that and the other. No, 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 I'll go to the shop and I'll do that sort of way. There is a generation and there is a type of person that is very happy to do their own thing and do it online. And they will be very happy to make any savings that they can out of not having the time of a financial planner. And they'll put all of that stuff into place themselves. The other side of it is the person who says, oh, look, this is all really confusing. I think we should go and talk to somebody about it. And they go and see the financial planner. Um, and then there are those people that want to go and see the financial planner that say, okay, if I'm going to go and see a financial planner, I want to know that that planner is backed by a large organisation because if anything goes wrong, that large organisation is going to make sure that I'm looked after and everything is okay. You've then got the other side that says, geez, those large organisations, they've done so many bad things over the years. I don't want to go to a planner that's with a large organisation. I'm going to go to an independent. So. My point with all of this, and this was the discussion that we led yesterday, is that there's room for everybody. Uh, there should be options for everybody. And if a large institution wants to put a robo-offering out there, fantastic. If that helps Australians uh, take out insurance, put savings plans into place and do those kind of things, it's got to be better for Australia as a country in, in terms of people being looked after financially. If there are people that prefer to see the financial advisor, happy to pay the fee because they want that surety, they want to be able to ask that person the questions, then that's what we need to be able to have. We need to have all of those things there to be able to do it. Now, it might be that over time, the person who goes to the financial planner says, you know, I could do this myself online and they go robo and they do it that way. There might be people who do robo that say, oh, this is a bit of a mess. Maybe I should go and speak to somebody and get this all fixed up. And they go the other way. But by not by not having a certain aspect, you're not serving a part of the community. You're cutting off um, services from that group because they don't want to deal in that, those other ways there with it as well. So that's, I suppose, where I come from is um, don't tell me you can't get financial advice. There's going to be so many ways and options that you're going to be able to go out and do that if we have robo. Um, if we have robo, then let's make sure, as you say, not Wiley Coyote putting it together so all roads <laughs> lead to this particular super plan with this particular fund. Make sure it's robust enough that it actually does uh, uh, survive scrutiny. For mine, that's the, uh, the, the uh, regulator's job. Jump in, check these things out. If you're going to use a robo um, uh, offer, then it needs to be checked out by the regulator so they can say, yep, no conflict of interest. There's nothing to see here. Go with it and put that out there and help as many people as you can. Um, so in the same way that they scrutinise what an individual financial planner will do. So as long as there's that overall scrutiny over the overall industry and we don't see that one gets favourable terms over the other, fantastic. That's great. And I, I might also add, Phil, there's an excellent example, two excellent examples out in the marketplace today of that robo kind of advice scenario when people aren't fully aware of what's going on. Uh, and I think it's very applicable. And, and thank you for your opinions there, because I think they're incredibly valuable and they come from, I think, a, a cornerstone of many, many years of in, in industry experience and also firsthand experience dealing with real clients but also managing compliance on, for and on behalf of financial dealer groups. Now, 
the two examples I want to bring forward for, I, I think, for the listeners to listen to and understand that these didn't work the way they were supposed to. And the first one is compare the market, and that's the the yes. big advertising mob with the um, with the meerkats, and the other one yep. is Travago. Now, both of these organisations have been taken to the regulator, the ACCC, because they didn't divulge the fact that not everything got compared and you actually had to pay to be part of those organisations to have your offerings put up on their website or to be compared. And so people mistakenly thought when they went to compare the market, they was they were going to something like Choice or Canstar, yes. and these, yes, these two comparing the market. <laughs> exactly. And so when you go to compare the market, you expect them to actually compare the entire market. And it wasn't until they got flushed out, and then you read the fine print, and the fine print now brings it all out, and it says, oh, by the way, we don't always put everybody in there. And I think that will always be the overrider, that no matter how foolproof we try and make these systems, and in and around financial advice, ladies and gentlemen, you have to take responsibility sooner or later and read the documents put in front of you. Read the fine print. I mean, I, I keep on saying to my kids, Phil, you know, assume it makes an ass out of you and me. <laughs> Never <Yes>. assume. <laughs> and, and so I, I think as a, as a finishing note today, ladies and gentlemen, firstly, Phil, thank you so kindly for coming back on the program. It's been a little bit of a, a hiatus since we've heard from you. So it's great to have you back at the mic. And, um, and again, congratulations for your recent appointment. I'm so pleased for you uh, that uh, you're being recognised for, um, yeah. for the expertise that you've got in the industry. But again, contributing to this this ongoing discussion about how we deliver advice, given that we are all living longer, given you know we have three trillion in superannuation, which will climb to five trillion before the end of the decade, easily, ladies and gentlemen. And so this is not going away. We need to be good, and we need to understand how to get good quality financial advice that we have trust in. And I guess Phil. Advice that we know is good value for money as well. Absolutely. No, no doubt about it. And uh, um, everyone's different in terms of what they agree is value for money. So find yourself the planner that's actually going to do that. Um, one thing you can, one little bit of due diligence a person can do is check out, uh, usually on a, an advisor's website, is what's called their financial services guide. And that will actually FG, give yes. you, or give you, yeah, uh, an and, uh, indication of what, what they charge. And are they somebody who's going to charge at that top end and have complex uh, scenarios? Is it somebody that's actually going to deal on a more simplistic basis and not charge as much in that respect? So there's certainly information, and don't be afraid to ask the question. And if somebody's going to go, um, uh, or, Oh, I need to, need to consider that, blah, blah, blah. Beauty, thanks very much. I'll uh, move on and we'll go from here. Um, exactly. Sometimes it does need a bit of consideration, but if somebody's hedging it and they're, they're being a bit dodgy, then move on. Absolutely. Wonderful. And, Phil, that's a wrap for today. Thank you so kindly for coming on the show again. Always a pleasure to have you here, and we look forward to the next set of topics when we, uh, when we get our heads around them. It's been a real pleasure to have you back at the microphone. That's it for me. Phil, thank you and goodbye. Thanks, Ray. Had a great time.